when people thought about diversity or they thought about multicultural affairs, because that's what it was before, um, we often thought about it from the standpoint of food, flags, and fun, right? Like you get a taste of a culture, you get a little piece of someone's lived experience, but you don't have to put yourself into it. And then that was the, you know, the culmination of your diversity experience um, when you're in school. But, you know, the, the truth of the matter of it is, is that diversity is also part of a culture, whether it's embedded or it's on the fringes. And we have to find ways to make sure that everyone feels included. You're listening to Black Women Lead, a podcast elevating the stories, struggles, and accomplishments of Black women leading change in their communities. Welcome back to the Black Women Lead podcast. I'm your host, Piper Carter. And once again, I am here with an incredible Black woman leader who is just Uh, exciting to me because of the times that we're in. And once we learn about her, I'm hoping that you'll be as excited about her work as I am. So welcome, welcome, welcome. Dr. Reed, Um, you are uh, here in Michigan. You Mm -hmm. are at a university. You are doing diversity and inclusion you are changing lives and transforming our society. Before I read your bio, I would like to welcome you, Karen Reed Hendon, to our Black Women Lead podcast. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yes, yes. And your work seems so, so exciting. So I called you Dr. Reed. Is that okay? Or do you prefer Dr. Hendon? Dr. Reed is just fine. Dr. Reed's fine. Okay, awesome. Okay, great, great, great. And I got a chance to learn a little bit about your work before, but um, I want to learn a lot of it about your work so that others know exactly what you do. And just before we get into the interview, I want to read your bio so that um, folks just kind of understand, you know, uh, who you are and, and what you've done. Sure. And so prior to her role at Lawrence Technical University, Dr. Reed was employed at the University of Michigan-Dearborn, where she served as an assistant director for orientation programs for over five years and for 10 years as director of diversity and inclusion at the Oakland University uh, in the William Beaumont School of Medicine. Um, She has 20 years of higher education experience, specifically in the area of student services. She has served on a number of professional educational committees and has worked collaboratively to present materials at regional and national conferences. Dr. Reed Hendon's memberships include Sigma Gamma Rho Sorority, uh, the Rho Sigma Chapter, National Association of Minority Medical Educators, National Association of Diversity Officers in Higher Education, King Chavez Park's Future Faculty Fellows, and NASPA Student Affairs Administrators in 
higher education. Dr. Reed Hendon obtained her Bachelor of Arts degree from University of Michigan in Ann Arbor and her Master of Arts degree from Eastern Michigan University. And she earned her PhD in educational leadership from Oakland University in 2013. I'm going to take a go on a limb here and probably guess that you figured we needed diversity and inclusion after attending U of M. <laughs> I mean, relatively speaking, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, just a joke there. But um, wow, very, very, very extensive education and resume and experience. Before we get into all of that, what is it that you're doing right now? What's a really important project that you've got on the table? Uh, so besides a lot, um, with me being brand new to Lawrence Technological University, my hands are in a lot of different areas. So um, I'm building the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion from the ground up. So that includes um, programming, that includes um, initiatives that I feel are important for our campus to have, uh, making um, collaborations across campus, especially where research um, is concerned, uh, making connections with um, community organizations as our most recent one is um, Junior Achievement of Southeastern Michigan. When I tell you that I'm all over the place, <laughs> I am literally all over the place. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, <clears throat> we're in these times, right? Where, yeah. where fortunately, there is a thing as a diversity and inclusion director and someone who is building this program, like you said, from the ground up. Um, could we just understand, like, when you say that, help us understand, like, what, do you, what, what all that entails to even, you know, how do you even build this program? Uh, I guess a lot of it is just kind of going back to the beginning, like when we think about what it took for um, integration efforts and realizing that while people were indeed becoming integrated into different societies, things weren't always fair or equal. And so with a number of laws, policies, rules, et cetera, uh, you have persons like myself that are coming in to make sure that those things are not only enforced, but that uh, the individuals that are part of those communities are feeling valued, respected, protected, and most of all, feel like they belong in those institutions. Yeah, that, I mean, so I'm wondering, <clears throat> that means that you have to um, work with folks and help them to actually think differently possibly, right? Yes. And yes. then you have to find money or is, or do you have to do that part? Uh, a little bit, yes. <laughs> you have to find money so that these endeavors can be funded. Mm -hmm. And then you have to find qualified uh, staff and people to sustain this work. Oh yeah. And you have to come up with some sort of metrics, right? Yeah. To make sure that you're 
I don't want to say meeting standards, maybe exceeding standards. Uh, oh, no, not not just meeting, but exceeding standards. <laughs> it's, it's all of it. So um, in, in higher ed, what we're seeing now is that with accreditation also comes for um, institutions that are going through the accreditation process to ensure that they're actually meeting and exceeding diversity, equity, and inclusion standards that have been set by their accrediting bodies. So it really does become a business case, ensuring that uh, diversity is happening um, in our institutions. So yeah, this this is, isn't little, not by a long shot. And you know, I think the thing that I find the funniest, well, not so much funny, maybe more ironic than anything, is that um, when we think about diversity and inclusion, or even when I think about my own experiences when I was an undergrad back in the 90s, um, when people thought about diversity or they thought about multicultural affairs, because that's what it was before, um, we often thought about it from the standpoint of food, flags, and fun, right? Like you get a taste of a culture or you get a little piece of someone's lived experience, but you don't have to put yourself into it. And then that was the, you know, the culmination of your diversity experience um, when you're in school. But, you know, the, the truth of the matter of it is, is that diversity is also part of a culture, whether it's embedded or it's on the fringes. And we have to find ways to make sure that everyone feels included. And it's very hard to do that for some uh, institutions that have been around for 30, 40, 50, 60, 150 years that haven't had to think about diversity, equity and inclusion efforts because they had their uh, name or um, their um, identity, which that would they have um, always been known to, to lean on. So even a university like the University of Michigan uh, where we often call ourselves leaders and best, often had to deal with the challenges that come along with who are we including at that table when we say leaders and best. And, you know, I was there in the Bollinger years when Lee Bollinger was president and going through the Grutter case that ultimately went to the Supreme Court and vividly remember um, having individuals say to me while I'm walking to class or walking to the union, you only got here because of affirmative action. Like, no, no, no. I, I worked my tail off to get here. I worked my tail to get in here and I'm going to work my tail to get out of here. And so we kind of see those same things replicating themselves over and over again 25 years later. Yeah, yeah. Um... So just so folks understand, because there may be people listening who um, may not really have, a, maybe they've heard of diversity and inclusion, and, um, they, but they may not really know precisely what, the, what, it, what it is and what the work is. And mm -hmm. you've spoken a little bit about it, but could you help us um, maybe a little bit, you know, crystallize for us, like, what is diversity and, in, and inclusion versus maybe what it's not? <laughs> okay, so um, there have been a number of different ways that people have um, explained what diversity is. Uh, my short and sweet answer is that diversity is everybody. It is literally all the things that make up who we are and that um, I am different from you, which makes you different from the person that's in the same room as you, which makes you different from the individual that's down the street from you, so on and so forth. 
we all have these characteristics about ourselves that are ever-changing and constant, right? Like you can't change the date that you were born. <laughs> you can't change the zodiac sign that you were born into, um, but you may choose to practice of a different faith or you may decide to move to a different place. So those are things about yourself that are ever-changing. That's what diversity is. It's all the different factors about yourself, all the characteristics that make you you in this big world of ours, right? When we talk about inclusion though, we are talking about being able to have those same groups of diverse people being able to come together and work together despite their differences. So it's their differences that actually make the group very strong as opposed to everyone thinking about things the same way. So Scott Page, uh, he is a researcher out of the University of uh, Michigan. He's also like one of the most smartest, <laughs> um, I would say mathematicians, but that would be wrong, um, that I, I have had the pleasure to meet and read his books. And he often talks about the business case for diversity. And the way that he explains it is um, when a group of people are going to a county fair and you have all of these individuals that may be looking to guess, uh, you know, how many pounds that a prized animal is. When you have all of the different people that are putting in their guesses, that group of different people putting in their guesses are probably going to get closest to the actual number versus all of the individuals that have that specific expertise. And that um, in most cases that he's seen over and over again, it's been that diverse group of individuals with their diverse group of thought that have been able to get very close to the mark rather than the individuals who all came from the same similar background or had the same kind of education and being very far off the mark. So that's what we're talking about when we talk, to, uh, talk about inclusion. And then um, I mentioned it separately just because I feel it is uh, something that we hear all the time, mm -hmm. but I definitely wanted you to give us an understanding of equity and how that plays into the equation. Okay, so let me first reiterate for everybody listening that equity is not equality. They are not the same. They are not synonymous with one another. When we're talking about equity, we're talking about things that we put in place to help individuals have more access to feel limitless in where they are. So a great way to think about this is we think about um, the Americans with Disabilities Act. So first of all, the Americans with Disabilities Act came around in 1990. That wasn't that long ago, right? But because of the Americans with Disabilities Act, there are now things that are part of our everyday life that we hadn't thought actually influenced our lives. How many times has a person gone to a door and been happy to see the little sign that you can hit that button and now the door magically opens up for you? Okay, that's ADA. Or how many times have we been walking on a curb and there's a step down? That's the ADA. It was all about making sure that everyone was able to have access. It did not mean that we were making things less available for people, but that we were indeed making more things equitable 
for people. We were thinking about a particular group in mind while having it benefit all individuals that were around us. So that's what equity is. We're talking about making things better for all who are around us. And then help us understand um, a bit more of our vocabulary. Um, so I know um, I'm a member of a um, racial equity organization. We have had many workshops on um, racial justice. And one of the workshops um, talks about implicit bias. And, oh. I, and I wonder, you know, because many times when we're uh, in workspaces, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of implicit bias, right? Really mm-hmm. comes out there. <laughs> yeah. So wanted yeah, to, yeah. you know, help us understand about, you know, implicit bias. And this is for folks who may be like, well, I'm not, a, you know, whatever, right? I don't discriminate against people, but help us understand right. like where, how implicit bias plays into all of this. Ah, so implicit bias, also known as unconscious bias, are those biases we have about individuals that float right beneath the surface of our consciousness, hence unconscious bias. So we don't necessarily intend to make those kinds of um, comments or decisions, but they do play a part in it. So I actually want to kind of take a step back, right? Um, What I think when most people tend to forget is that how we were raised impacts how we see things, okay? Our families were our first teachers. So we often will see things through that lens first before we consider other lived experiences. So the example that I've used uh, in a number of ways, um, because I actually teach a diversity in the workforce course, is I I use the, uh, the chair as an example, or a pencil, or a cup, right? So depending on who you are, where you are in your life, how you identify with that object will pretty much determine what that object means to you. So a chair, we all know that universally it's a chair, right? However, if you are like my six-year-old daughter, A chair is not a chair, it is a hiding place, okay? Uh, If you are like my uh, niece who is on the smaller stature side, a chair isn't a chair, it is a stepping stool to get to the top of the refrigerator to get the items that she wants off of there. Uh, If you are a person that's fighting for your life in a domestic violence situation, a chair isn't a chair, it's a weapon. But again, universally, we all know it as being a chair. So take that same thought process and now you begin to apply it to people. We know that people are people, but depending on how we were raised, what kind of spaces we've been in, we may have certain characteristics ingrained in us that make us think that certain individuals are a certain way, even if we've had no experience with them. There is a really great story that was actually written by Michael Harriet. Uh, He is a writer and a blast to follow on Twitter. And he talks about his own experiences of having an interaction 
with white people. And he says he came to it from a thought process of thinking about the way he was raised and how um, his mother didn't really allow for um, his uh, siblings and himself to watch a lot of television or read a lot of books, but that she really made the push of ensuring that her kids knew about who they were as um, Black people first. And it wasn't until he got much older that he began to see like, oh, wow, these things really are taught to us or ingrained in us by proxy of who's actually teaching us. So if let's just say that, you know, if he never had an experience with white people, but the only information that he received was from watching television and the way that television is set up now, um, is really making a case for uh, making people believe that white males, as an example, um, that there are issues there. Do you think that he's gonna feel comfortable standing next to a white person? Probably not because his experience has been limited and it's been fed by what he's been watching on TV. However, if early on, if he's always been exposed to different kinds of people, he's going to have a very different reaction when now standing next to a person, okay? Um, things that can be learned can also be unlearned. But our families really do play a huge part in how um, we see the world around us. The communities that we're a part of play a huge role and how we view the world around us, things that we ingest, be it uh, the, you know, the books we read, the movies we watch, the articles we read, the television we watch, all of those things do play a role in how we view other individuals. And it's often when something comes at us um, that seems antithetical to what we've always seen that we tend to begin to question, okay, well, is that real? Um, I thought that Black women were always like this, but they're not because my boss is like this. I always thought that um, um, uh, Hispanic men were like this, but indeed they're actually like this. So really playing a real part in helping to kind of tear down uh, those false narratives and stereotypes about individuals. Yeah. And, you know, I, um, I attended uh, this, like, really powerful um was it two days um i think it was a two-day intensive um training another time and mm -hmm. i think they 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 um did a really good job at uh th their process you know we went through the timeline of um just here in in, in america this timeline of uh the impact of slavery on the country and on society and on uh, the way we do business and the and all this kind of thing and what I found um, the 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 circle was uh, all people that are part of the um, this organization and I believe it uh, was maybe like thirty or forty people and mm -hmm. um, I think it was only like three or four of us that were of color and um, it was just interesting to me. Um, the trainers, uh, one, uh, yeah, they were all of color. And what was interesting to me is, um, the 
in the trainings, you know, they mix like, I want to say like history or like facts, but mm -hmm. what they did was like retaught history. So all of the history and facts that we learned just took all these markers of time. And then we, we, you know, went through and then they retold all of that. And um, by the time we ended the session, I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I, when, I, when we first got the invite, cause I'm on the board, you know, I'm like, yeah, I'm a black woman. I don't need anti-racism training. Like, you know, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, that's those things, yeah. mind. you know, you're like, what do I need this for? I know about this, but right. I do appreciate the training um, that I received in, in that training and in the subsequent trainings that, um, that I received. And I wanted to know if you could speak a bit about, um, because all these companies, right? Like after last year, um, I mean, it had been bubbling over time, but last year everyone made like, hey, we're gonna do this uh, time. You, yeah. Everyone's gotta go, blah, blah. Can you yeah. speak to, um, I wanna use the word like maybe successful, like a, like a, what a, what a successful like diversity and inclusion equity training is that, you know, maybe companies should be, you know, where, how, how would they look or how would they choose? Like, how do they know, like, you know, if the program's great, like, can you help us understand that? Oh, <laughs> so. And I don't, you don't have to name like specific companies, but just okay. the, the, like content wise, like what should they be looking for kind of like that? So I think often the challenge that comes with um, diversity training is that those that need it won't go and those that um, have always known will. So it's often a situation of preaching to the choir um, when indeed everyone can learn a lot uh, in regard to um, diversity training. So um, I think diverse, I think what's important about diversity training is that it often hits where you live or where you work. So um, prior to my coming to um, Lawrence Tech, I was at OUWB for 10 years. And we often talked a lot about um, diversity and inclusion by way of um, access and, um, and uh, uh, racial inequities. And it really hit home for a lot of individuals. We had one situation where we did a, um, a food drive with one of the churches on the deep east side. And um, that was the first year that the medical school was um, in place. And um, I could tell, I could, I could see with my own eyes that all of these very smart medical students had not encountered people of color in that particular space before. And by space, I mean, just, you know, in, in that, um, you know, point in time, um, some had only uh, engaged with poverty from a very um, mission filled experience. So doing mission trips with their church or, um, what some would call voluntourism, 
so, you know, allowing them to be able to take the picture with the group or, you know, do this kind thing for a community, but then never going back and being a part of that community. Um, we actually had one young lady that um, started crying because she couldn't believe that um, individuals did not know how to read. And um, I found myself saying that day, um, now that you've seen this for what it is, please take into consideration now what you have to do. That when you're talking about becoming a physician, you're talking about taking care of all people, regardless of how they show up. And I think that that kind of started the fire um, for a number of students. Um, at the same time though, we were seeing um, white coats for black lives. Um, we were seeing um, a lot of um, social unrest, which then prompted organizations to create trainings. Um, and I would say for every um, DEI professional that I know, again, we know that training can either be really, really well taken and actionable items take place and they're implemented. And then for others, it never takes shape because, oh, that's their issue, that's their problem. So when you begin to root it in um, words and experiences that people know, uh, that people can see that their families would find themselves in or uh, their colleagues would see themselves in, it begins to take on a very different turn. Um, but at the same time, diversity training has never been a one and done thing. Um, even cultural humility, it's never been something that's done in one sitting, one video, one PowerPoint. It is indeed an ongoing process where you continue to learn and you apply the new information that you're receiving. So uh, a lot of organizations nowadays are doing, uh, you know, um, long term uh, development and training with organizations. Uh, others have taken it to where it's now a part of um, the tenure process for faculty that you have to show that you are making moves uh, in regard to diversity, equity, and inclusion, that you're doing research and it's, it's following those trends. So it often takes shape just in different ways and, and forms, but, but those that are about the business, that are about the work, I, and I've always said it, once they've seen it, they can't unsee it. So once they see the issues that come along with um, xenophobia, uh, racism, misogyny, um, classism, they now feel compelled to do something about it. And that's when you know that a, um, a diversity training has not only worked, but is starting to really put seeds into the ground um, for good things to come up. So, and those individuals never stop learning once they've learned what they can look for. And so let's say, well, I guess it's hard to say on average, but what would mm -hmm. you recommend for companies? You know, um, like I said, the, the one board that I'm on, we did a two day deep dive. Another mm -hmm. org I'm a part of, like that's their work. They're working to, mm -hmm. Do co they're doing a cohort model where they have um, cohorts that are made up of mm -hmm. different people from different um, 
companies and organizations like um and i guess like you just said there is no one size you know fits all but i'm wondering um you know for companies that are really looking to do better um do you do you think they should it you know uh try to is it is it useful for them to try to get their folks to do like these deep dive like one week or two days or you know does that cause disruption for people like how you know how (laughs) you know how do companies you know uh do this better so i i guess it comes from a standpoint of either being proactive or reactive and um what i've come to notice is that when it comes to diversity equity and inclusion efforts it often comes from a standpoint of being reactive as opposed to proactive. Um, but if a um, if leadership in a particular organization is clued in enough and keyed in enough with their organization, uh, I think that they know that doing climate surveys is important. I think they know that instead of just kind of burying the information or only looking for the good out of that information that they actually take on the reckoning themselves in um, reviewing that data and then using that data as the foundation for making um, changes in the organization, right? So, you know, they're, they're going about it from, a, um, from the data points that which they have received. But here's also the other thing about data. We also know that data doesn't often tell the whole story that often it's people's lived experiences and their willingness to share their experiences that again hits home. So while um, an organization may have a 4.8 rate out of five, you know, 4.8 stars out of five stars for being a place that's um, feeling inclusive and belonging, if you begin to break down that information, Uh, you might see that those numbers for women look very different than they do for men, or that those numbers look vastly different for uh, your um, persons of color um, versus those who are um, of the majority, and having to reckon with that information. So not being afraid of the data that's being presented but then also bringing those groups to the table to say that we've seen this now we're looking to those of you that are in that community, that are in it, that are you know in the grind, help us to figure out how we can better do this work. Uh, you know, some organizations do feel like if they just have a you know a diversity person come in and and do a session or um, do a week worth of deep dive, that that'll do it. But to be perfectly honest, that's something that's often ingrained in the culture. And it often takes a cultural shift in order to improve a working or a learning environment. So companies have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, with being called to the carpet about their practices, their past practices, what they've done to um, mitigate um, bias or what they haven't done to mitigate bias, you know, have, they have to have a have a soul search within themselves. Um, if they've let um, people and policies go unchecked that have caused harm, um, it, it's it's a lot of work. 
it it really is. And honestly, the work is never done. But I think that as long as organizations are making not just good faith efforts, but putting action and resources behind those items that their employees, that their faculty, that their staff, that their students, et cetera, et cetera, are saying that this is what we need in order to feel valued, in order to feel heard, respected, protected, et cetera. The organization has a responsibility to do that work. Yeah, you know, what's interesting, um, there's a company here, a pretty prominent company here being in Detroit, Michigan. Mm-hmm. And um, they did an ad um, on a window some, I don't know, a couple years ago. And the ad was pretty offensive. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a racially offensive ad. Um, It wasn't caught, right? Because obviously you have a whole team that works on your ads. (laughs) And there wasn't anyone there that thought, ah, that's not a good idea. (laughs) Right. And so it went out. It was a thing. It got um, a lot of um, press, negative press. I remember. Yeah. They had to take it all down. Yeah. They had to take it down. They had to make it different. And um, their uh, response was so there's a a black gentleman who does like who did like some other job he was some director of something totally else that had nothing to do with advertising or any of that Mm -hmm. and so basically it came from the top that the solution was that since this black guy is like the black guy at the company that has a senior position that Mm -hmm. he that Anything that goes out, like he should check it first um, <laughs> before it goes out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that was a thing. And then this same company also um, has a lot, employs a lot of people here. Yeah. And what um, I've learned from different people who are employed there on, on, in many different capacities is that although this company is very successful, very profitable, um, they do not um, off transfer that success to their employees. And so their employees end up working extensive hours and are underpaid. And so what say ye um, to these types of companies? Because I don't want to single out this one company. They are an example of many companies that are, are doing these types of things. So um, how can you help? Ooh, that's a <laughs> that's a loaded question, Piper. <laughs> and not to, you know, I know people probably know who the company is, but we didn't, there's no libel here. We didn't say names. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, huh, and I remember when that happened and, and uh, I think one of the first responses that I had was like, so nobody, nobody saw this, like nobody? Nobody, everybody thought this was okay. And that's usually indicative of having a homogenous um, team as opposed to a diverse team. Um, But it also speaks to a larger point of not having enough um, different people in those C-suite positions. And um, often, again, 
you know, putting something out there, not thinking about the consequence because everybody is busy high-fiving each other that they did something good or they did something nice and had not thought about the impact of that thing that they did. And then everyone, you know, kind of running around uh, trying to um, explain or, or, you know, um, explain away why they did what they did and then uh, making the promise to do better. But then again, you are seeing more individuals at the bottom, but that's not coming up to the upper echelons of the organization. Uh, and, and again, uh, just from my standpoint, from the outside looking in, uh, you know, back in the day, we used to say, you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself, right? Like you're, um, you know, the people that are in those roles, they have to be willing to take on a hard look at who's creating the content and putting it out there. Um, they have to think about the community and that which they serve, um, you know, especially from a local perspective. So if you are a large multinational, for example, and you are in a place that is conservatively 10% white people, um, it, it does not help your case in a city that's 90% everybody else. Uh, it just, you know, actually reinforces that this is just a takeover, right? As opposed to being community-minded, community-focused. So, you know, that's actually a reckoning that has to take place at the top. And they have to kind of, they have to wipe the slate and say, okay, we need people in here that are um, culturally aware and actually know um, who our community is and not just choose, uh, you know, the one black man or the one Hispanic woman or, you know, or the one um, Indian American um, because, um, hey, see, look, this person is diversity. Uh, no, <laughs> you know, what you should be doing is looking to your employee resource groups. Uh, you know, what you should be doing is making a lot of that information available for all groups to have some say so. Uh, just because a person is in customer service, it doesn't mean that they don't have an opinion. Um, but I also recognize that in doing that, you're actually, you know, kind of bogging down uh, the, the system of being able to get things done. So the organization itself would really have to look at how they do things and how can it be um, a more inclusive process for those um, that want to be a part of the decision-making process. But yeah, that was, yeah, that was not great. <laughs> So then there's another, so that's one, I don't want to say level, but that's one tier of business, you know, that they're operating at um, a certain, uh, you know, like you said, multinational, they have a lot of money, you know, so they're dealing. So that's one. There's also, um, you know, just in general, we've seen, uh, I want to use the word growth <laughs> in the new people that come into cities who are not from there, who yes. open businesses and what, um, I, I, I'll give one example. Um, I went to a, a talk or um, a discussion mm -hmm. and it was, it was a discussion because everyone was talking to each other. And basically there, there had been an incident where there had been a, a young uh, black man 
who had gone to a restaurant and um, something uh, occurred to where the waitress um, discriminated against him. And so he went to uh, an entity to support him and their solution was to have um, talks at this restaurant with people of different backgrounds, just kind of an everybody come, everybody come have this conversation. Mm -hmm. So in that, we were at different tables and placed, and it was a pretty open, a lot of people came from different backgrounds, ages, everything. Mm -hmm. And what I found interesting was um, at my, just my little table where we did our little talk, the, uh, let's say it was myself, there was another um, older African-American woman that we would say we could classify as an elder. Mm -hmm. There was a, maybe a younger Caucasian, uh, young man. We could say he was probably, uh, Gen Z ish, maybe early twenties. And then, uh, there was another young woman, African-American, probably like a millennial. Um, Mm -hmm. oh, and the elder brought her friend. So they were kind of like peers, Mm-hmm. And so we were at our table, you know, just uh, having conversation. And so what I found interesting was um, the elder had talked about how she also went to the same restaurant some 20, 30 years ago, and the same exact thing happened to her, right? Mm. And um, the, uh, the young woman that was the millennial she said that she had gone to the same restaurant maybe a year ago and hadn't been back because the same thing happened to her. And um, what was interesting is the restaurant owner, of course, was saying that this, you know, he's here for the community. He doesn't know, you know, this was a one-time incident, you know, this kind of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and the young man <laughs> that was there next to me, Um, When we were coming up with, you know, uh, that we had a series of questions and one of his suggestions um, was, um, and I don't know if, you know, everyone from everywhere is going to watch this. So I'm going to give some local references, but I'll try to make them uh, make, you know, so you understand. Mm -hmm. We have a hockey team and we have a a basketball team Mm -hmm. and they play in the, in the, in the, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're for the city but they're very different uh, <laughs> yeah. audiences. Very different audiences. <laughs> Although the basketball audience is a bit more diverse, <laughs> yeah. there's definitely an audience for the hockey team. <laughs> and not yeah. to say that, that other people don't enjoy uh, wearing their gear or, um, yeah. or enjoy them as a, as a sport, but we could say that possibly on a marketing wise, they kind of serve different markets. I'll say that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so the young man, suggested that to mend this situation, what uh, Detroit needs to do is have a day where African-Americans can come free to the uh, hockey team's uh, games. (laughs) I'm trying not to laugh as I'm telling you this, but, you know, he was saying that, that, that it was, you know, he, they could come, could that be a free day for all the blacks and to come, to the hockey day and that would help with um you know detroit being diverse 
Now, this young person, okay, like I said, he's like a Gen Z. Like to me, that's a baby, like, you know, a baby adult, you know? Um, And I'm like, oh man, like this is, uh, we're starting this at this age. And so, but he was sincere, okay? He really sincerely believed, like, this all you gotta do is if everyone comes together and has a conversation. And I just remember uh, trying to lovingly say to him, like, I don't think you, would even want uh, <laughs> to see what that would look like. <laughs> that doesn't sound like that would be a good idea. No. And he was like, why not? So there was even a, not an even understanding of why that might not, might not, might not be a good idea. And right. so um, what say you in terms of, because I know, and, and I told that story because what I've heard, and now this is pre-COVID, I haven't been mm-hmm. in these meetings uh, during COVID. Sure. But pre-COVID, uh, what I, you know, was hearing was about the expense and the cost of, uh, you know, doing, like you said, you know, this position of mm-hmm. diversity, equity, inclusion, you know, do we need to hire a director? Do we need to have a retreat? You know, can you speak to, and you have done so eloquently this whole interview, but really on a nugget level, the value of actually carving that space out for as a, maybe a position, even if you have a tiny company or investing in, in, in a training, because we talked about, on, like I said, the one scale, but this restaurant that I'm speaking of, um, they are, they've been here a, a while, so but there's other restaurants that are, you know, coming into community that that are also um, offending, offending people that have been here for a long time. And um, oh, and I have to add that um, the the hosts of the event stopped at our table and, and, and their suggestion was that the people who have been here a long time, like the, the black and brown people who've been living here that they need the diversity and inclusion training so they can know how to act when they go to, when they go out so they don't get treated this way. So I'm wondering, you know, like how, like how do we, and, and, and this is like only a year ago. So no more than a year ago, cause it was pre COVID, but these are all millennials that I'm telling you about. The suggestion came from an African-American young woman that is actually from, from the city with the inner city. So that was interesting, but um, I'm wondering, you know, just can you speak to, you know, how, how, how um, more people could have access to this kind of training? Cause you spoke of it being consistent. And I know the first mm-hmm. thing that people are thinking is ching, ching, ching. So right. yeah. How can us as a society, you know, on maybe the entrepreneur level, entry level business, level these a lot of people have come to the city now like how can how can more folks have access to uh to this kind of training you know sure so uh let me first say that there are a whole host of resources that are free that people can go to um uh, you know, there are institutions that have, um, you know, training modules online. 
you know, a person can take the implicit association test so that they can try to figure out where their blind spots are as it relates to uh, unconscious bias, all kinds of books to be read. If you don't want to read a book, tons of documentaries that are out there to watch. Uh, lots and lots of um, TEDx speeches to be watched. Uh, if you don't feel like reading and you don't feel like watching, but you'd rather hear, I am a huge fan of the audiobook um, and and listening and just taking notes. But more importantly, I, getting to know the people in your community is hugely important. I, I think that when you have a lot of individuals that are coming from outside of a community and coming in um, saying, this is how we want things, to me, that just is just blatant disregard for the community that's always been there, right? So like um, Washington, D.C., as an example, is going through uh, gentrification upon gentrification. So um, there are city blocks in DC um, where it's always been about the go-go music and the Ben's Chili Bowl and um, you know Howard's Homecoming. And yet you have individuals that are moving into those spaces that don't have an understanding or respect for those institutions uh, saying, things like, well, your school should just move so that I can walk my dog here. That happened at Howard. Or um, the police being called on um, a record store because they always have go-go music blasting out of uh, the store and those new neighbors don't want to hear go-go music in the street. Right. So um, they don't have an understanding of the institutions that they've now found themselves becoming a part of. Um, and the same could be said for people that are coming from outside of Detroit that are coming here uh, to make um, a living and to make a home. Um, they're coming into spaces that uh, have always had a particular uh, importance uh, to the city. You know, I remember when Cass Corridor was Cass Corridor and not Midtown, right? Uh, you know, people don't have an understanding of um, Paradise Valley or Black Bottom. And um, they, I, you know, and I say this in a way that that's probably kind of sad, but they don't care because it's about the bottom dollar, but they need to care if they want to keep a business. So, as much as I can appreciate that young person saying, oh, if we just have a day for Black people, and then um, the other young woman saying, well, people just need to know how to act. Um, <laughs> as a woman of a certain age, um, I can hear my grandmother saying, you need to watch your mouth, right? Because you are talking about institutions that have been here that have fought to stay here and will be here after we go, regardless of, of who comes in or how they want to name it or how they want to change it, those institutions will always be there. So um, there's definitely a need for a teaching of what those places and spaces and those communities um, are all about. You know, you just can't, you just can't um, pay your way through um, people knowing how to act. 
um, you know, can you can you set up standards of which you want your um, employees to work? Absolutely. You know, you can set standards in terms of how you engage with customers and how you uh, communicate. Um, but it's also, I think, behoven of those um, of those businesses to to know the footprint of the communities that they're a part of. Um, you know, you you don't diss the community that has allowed you to come in. You don't do that. You do your part to be as much of the community as they have said, we're going to welcome you. So you don't alienate the community by making sweeping statements um, that were um, made. And again, I think, I think it comes from just, uh, you know, those young people having a completely different experience of the city, whereas it looks different for us, you know, it looks different for our parents and grandparents, etc. But there's still a reverence and a respect that's to be had. Thank you for that. And um, as a Howard alum, I am appalled. I'm clutching my pearls. <laughs> oh yeah, that was a that was a huge, huge thing. I remember watching that and being angry for Howard University. Like even yeah. though I didn't go to Howard, I was mm -hmm. mad for Howard. Yeah, that is a bit much, lady. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So how did you? you know, you're little Karen and you're growing up and you're looking, you know, through your coloring books and whatever you did as a young person. And you, was it that you, there wasn't enough brown crayons or how did you come to decide like, this is what I want to do? Uh, so I think uh, for a lot of people that I know that are in higher ed, we all just kind of fell into it. Um, you know, some people, as you said before, they, you know, they grew up knowing that they knowing that they wanted to become doctors or wanting to run a business or uh, or something of that nature. I had no idea. I, I think I wanted to be everything. So, you know, I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be, uh, you know, a news anchor. I wanted to be all of these different things. But, you know, when I got to college, um, I had a hard time really trying to find my place. Um, at first, I just knew I was going to be an economics major, and then that economics class kicked my tail, and I was like, you know what? Nope, not going to happen. And then, you know, um, uh, you know, getting sick while as a student and realizing, well, if I don't even want to take myself to a doctor, what kind of doctor would I make? So let me just kind of cross that off the list. Um, but knowing that uh, I love to talk. And talk is what I did, but also just kind of engaging my peers. That was what I was good at. So I landed on um, communication studies as a major, and I just knew that I was going to go into public relations. Um, you know, it wasn't Olivia Pope at the time, you know, but I could see myself doing that work and then actually getting into that after college and realizing that is not what I am built for. I am a collaborator. Uh, you know, I am someone that wants to build bridges, not burn bridges. So let me not do that. And so um, when I found myself in that in-between time 
um, as a young person, I did um, I did temp jobs because it made sense. You know, you kind of try different things. And I had an experience at Wayne State where I got to work in the dean of students office and and just I immediately fell in love with it. I knew that that was what I wanted to do. I knew that that was you know where I wanted to be. And it just kind of sucked me in from there because here I was engaging with students that were slightly younger than me, but I could actually give them, you know, pearls of wisdom, you know, whatever little pearls I had at 22, but I could, <laughs> but I could give that to them. Um, you know, being encouraged by the vice president of student affairs to go and earn my master's degree, being encouraged by um, the director of financial aid to go get that master's degree full time so that you can get in and get out. Um, you know, I was really influenced by their willingness to pour into me. And um, getting that very first job out of, um, out of graduation, actually at Lawrence Tech, in career services, um, but it was a temp position at the time, but seeing that, yes, I am able to help students and then landing that full-time position at University of Michigan Dearborn, um, where I did orientation programs. And for me, that's where the diversity training began. That's where the, uh, the need for um, um, doing diversity and inclusion started because with orientation, you are literally dealing with everybody from everywhere. You're dealing with parents, you're dealing with community members, you're dealing with prospective students, new students, transfer students. And what I didn't want to have happen was having orientation leaders that treated people any old kind of way. I just, I would not allow that. It was just unacceptable to me. So I made them go through six weeks of training before they could even um, sign up for a shift. And a lot of those students I still keep in contact with today. And they said that that time really made an impact on how they viewed the world. So I really kind of found my niche in doing that work. And then uh, I hit a ceiling. I hit a ceiling in that work and got an opportunity at OUWB and then I did that. And again, um, was able to mentor students, was able to work with students. I have had the high pleasure of watching students that I've known since they were in high school um, or, or you know, early on in their college careers become physicians um, getting matched at uh, top residency spots, um, cultivating those relationships with students from across the country that even though they've gone other places, I've kept in contact with them, that uh, I tell them all that they're a part of my care team. So if I see, or if I feel like there's anything wrong with me, like they're getting the first call and I'm taking pictures, like what's this, diagnose it, right? Um, but seeing how they're being a part of medical education, being a part of medicine, they are literally changing the face of medicine. So, you know, I have um, young men and women from just across the spectrum who are just killing it. And, I, you know, I'm extra proud 
uh, you know, for what little mentoring I could do, the one thing that I made sure that I always did was remind them that not only are they worthy, that they were made for that work. And when I tell you that those rockets have gone off into the stratosphere, they have exceeded my expectations, their mama's expectations, their grandmama's expectations, like they've really taken it to a whole new level. And I just, I couldn't be prouder. Wow, that's so beautiful. So um, I feel like, yeah, I feel like so full. I feel like I've learned a lot, actually. I, um, <laughs> I'm just inspired by this work that you're doing. It's so important. And um, it's growing. I yeah. see I see so many changes from one year ago. Yeah, you know, just from one year ago, um, I had, you know, seen it kind of bubbling a little bit and, you know, blossoming. But um, yeah, let's see where it goes. Let's see where, you know, the direction of creating a better world, you know, and people like yourself that are making sure that that everyone is involved in this process, you know, yeah. of, of making our world more equitable and making sure that everyone's included in, in the decisions. So, um, Oh yeah. It's not, and there's many thoughts, right? There's, Oh yeah. There's all yeah. kinds of levels. And, and yeah. um, something that I will always tell people that it's never just my job to do this work, mm. that we're all responsible in doing this work. I'm just the face. But when we're all responsible for it, like when it's when it's a part of our job descriptions and it's a part of the uh, divisions that we're a part of or the departments that we're a part of, you begin to take on like the, the real responsibility of ensuring that we're doing that work. It's collective. And thank you. Thank you for leading and being a, such a great leader. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and then, so, you know, we talked about your mentorship, but could you just mention to us uh, before we go, um, how can can folks support the work that you're doing currently? Oh, uh, so um, I think in a lot of ways. So we do have programs that take place on campus and a lot of things are done via Zoom. So I can always make information available for individuals on our ltu.edu slash DEI webpage for any events that we have. Um, uh, I am in the process of planning, at least I'm gonna try to figure it out anyway, of creating another pipeline program to continue the work of um, just engaging those young minds that are interested in science, technology, engineering, math, and medicine. Um, because I'm sorry, you just, you don't do this work for 10 years and then just be like, okay, I'm done, I'm out. Like, no, I, I think that's just kind of, it's just that work that continues on. Um, I don't, I don't know. I, I think just, I think folks just find me and then we just, we just get it together. I think that's just, that's just how it is. But um, at least all my contact information is on um, our LTU page. So if yeah. folks wanted to reach out to me, they could. Oh, thank you for that. Thank you for spending uh, this time with us and sharing with us and helping us understand how we can all do better, <laughs> how to <laughs> our role to do thank better, you. you know, and, and, and giving us an outline, like what we could actually do. 
I feel Absolutely. like we, we're walking away with a lot of great things, um, no matter where we are. And so this has, we've been talking to Karen Reed Hendon. Well, doctor. Doctor. <laughs> Karen Reed Hendon. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, this is her game. Ask her and she'll tell you the same. <laughs> again and again and again. You know, Look at you dropping bars. <laughs> yeah, it's important. You know, it's important work. And um, just really appreciate all you're doing. And we just want everyone to continue listening to Black women because Black women lead and will lead you to the right direction. So thank you again and really appreciate all you're doing. Thank you. Learn more about outstanding Black women leaders and how you can support their work at blackwomenleadus.com.